Hello and welcome to the I Look Like a Doctor podcast, the podcast dedicated to interviewing physicians underrepresented in medicine to inspire the next generation. I am your host, Sarah Torres. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to a new episode. Uh, I just want to mention one thing before I go on with the introduction of this episode. So I am currently on uh, vacation, essentially, until I graduate in May from medical school. And so that gives me just a lot of time. A lot of time to produce some more episodes, and I would like to actually incorporate a different kind of episode in addition to the narratives that I am sharing. Essentially, in the future, I am planning to have co-hosts come on with me to discuss certain topics. It just depends on who the co-host is and what they would like to talk about, so stay tuned for that. And now on to the introduction for today's episode. For today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Ursula Griffiths-Randolph. She is a current PGY-1 or intern at the UCSF Pediatrics Residency Program, and we are so thrilled to have her on the show today. Dr. Griffiths-Randolph, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I am so excited to have you on. I know it's been a very long day for you, day of a life of an intern, so I'm really appreciative that you're here with me today. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. So typically, I know that we talked a little bit, you know, behind the scenes through email, um, but typically I like to start off the podcast, which is asking the guests uh, to tell us a little bit about yourself and what drove you to medicine. Sure. So I was born and raised in the D.C. metro area on the Maryland side of the DMV. I um, am of Ghanaian descent. My parents are both uh, born in Ghana, and um, I'm very lucky that I get to go back pretty often and I'm don't speak the language, but I'm very much connected with the culture. I started off my educational career as a public health and child development major. Um, I was interested in global health and WHO. That's kind of the vision that I had for myself is that I was going to work for an international NGO doing public health work. Um, When I graduated from undergrad in 2010, that was like two years into the Great Recession. And colloquially, nobody was hiring. And so we were all advised, you should probably just go get a degree real quick. So um, I wanted an MPH anyway. (laughs) And so I went ahead and I got my MPH and I focused in maternal and child health, kind of keeping on brand with my undergrad degree in child development. Then kind of sat back, you know, when 2012 came around and I graduated, I um, thought, okay, the Great Recession is supposedly over. Maybe somebody will employ me. And the answer was, no, they will not employ you. No, they won't. (laughs) 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 Basically, public health is currently in its very sexy heyday because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so people are saying, ooh, public health measures. Ooh, and it's a big buzzword at the moment. But in 2012... (laughs) There was no love. There was no love like that. Um, You know, we came out after the recession, you know, you had the the MPH, but you had no work experience. And they're looking at you and they're looking at a bachelor's degree holder. And you guys are equally ranked to them, except because you're a master's, they'd have to pay you more. So um, they were hiring batch people coming straight out of undergrad, but they were really not hiring many of us who got MPHs at that time. So now we had to sit and think. What are we going to do? We have loans. We had a dream and things are just kind of quietly crumbling around us. And um, I had been pre-med in undergrad, but I, (laughs) you know how that first round of pre-med goes. I don't know. Maybe, maybe everybody else (laughs) did fine the first time, but I did not. It was very difficult. And so I, what do you mean after, (laughs) what do I mean? I well, that's, that's, that, that's what this that's what this whole show is no, about, you know, like 100%. being kind of transparent about what's going on yes, and hundred and, percent. Yeah. No, so I definitely took organic chemistry twice in undergrad and withdrew the first time in time and the second time uh, failed uh, flat out F, which is really very you know as the sort of person who grew up in IB AP classes, the sort of person who grew up very mm-hmm. you know high achieving. It was a very very confusing time. Um, it was very confusing. Didn't understand how we got here. Didn't understand why I wasn't getting the support I thought I needed. Uh, all the feedback I was getting from advisors is, well, you should probably be less involved in like musicals and, um, you know, music participation, like focus all of your things on pipetting and bench research. And I said, I'm not interested in bench research. I went to undergrad at Tufts University and, you know, go jumbos and all that. But Tufts um, has this big old <laughs> inferiority complex because we're so close to 
the really fancy people in Boston. And um, if you weren't going to, you know, be on the straight and narrow traditional pre-med path, they weren't interested in uh, mentoring you. So for someone mm-hmm. like me, who wanted to major in, you know, social sciences, for someone like me, who's extracurricular activities were very heavily music and art based. Um, I got absolutely no support from the pre-med advising at Tufts. And that's so unfortunate. That's, you know, basically they wanted you to fit a mold. (laughs) A very, very clear, very clear mold that I was not having. And so in addition to not fitting that mold, I was having a hard time in classes. But because I didn't fit the mold, nobody suggested tutoring. Nobody suggested other ways of going around it. Um, Fun fact that, you know, folks at Tufts and Harvard know, but people at uh, people around the country don't wouldn't think about kids at Tufts used to go to Harvard to take their science classes because it was easier. Really? Does that sound like a sentence that makes sense? And yet it was very much the situation when I was an undergrad is that people of people, some people knew the, like knew this as a secret. Like I didn't figure find out until junior year when I've already wasted several low grades. Um, but people <laughs> would go over the summer and take their science classes at Tufts to do their pre-med requirements, or excuse me, not at Tufts, at Harvard, to do their Mm pre-med requirements because they got more support, they got tutoring, they were better supported in general, and they all were able to do what they needed to do to get through pre-med courses. I did everything at Tufts poorly. And so after graduating, I knew for sure I definitely wanted public health. And so I went down that path and said, I'll think about the medicine thing later if it's really that serious. And come Mm -hmm. 2012, when I was sitting there unemployed and trying to figure out how am I going to do what I envisioned doing for my communities and for the world. I said, you know who they let do basically whatever they want? MDs and DOs. (laughs) Maybe I need to rethink this. So (laughs) I started working at a travel medicine agency, or not agency, but travel medicine clinic. And um, the doctor I worked for there was extremely supportive and very, very much like, no, you can do this. You're totally going to go back. In addition to his support, I met a DO for the first time. I hadn't met a DO before. Tufts did not publicize the fact that DOs were an option or a thing. And Mm -hmm. he heard my story and he said, what are you talking about? Just take Orgo real quick and come. I'll take you. And that, again, is after, what, now six years of hearing that it was never, like med school was never going to be an option because I just didn't have it in me. So I worked at the travel clinic for a year and then in... 2014, I decided to get some clinical experience on board. Um, If I was thinking like, I want to go back into the space, like, okay, you know, doing a front desk admin stuff is cool, but let me get some clinical experience. So I got a certificate in phlebotomy and I became a phlebotomist Mm -hmm. and I worked for, as a phlebotomist for two years and um, I worked full time. And then at nights I did the university of Maryland science in the evening program. Basically, it's a post back without an actual certificate. They just kind of give you the opportunity to do the classes. They're available at night for folks who work. And I did all of my pre-med requirements over and then some just to make sure Mm -hmm. that I had a strong look. I can do the science if somebody vaguely supports me. And um, then in 2016, took the MCAT, did okay. uh, And I applied to medical school. I then during that gap year couldn't work as a phlebotomist because they didn't have flexible enough scheduling for the interview trail. So I went back to Boston having, even though it treated me badly the first time, I had a (laughs) lot of good connections and um, was able to get a temp job at MGH, which then ended up being um, a job at Partners Connected Health, which was at the time an organization kind of dedicated to technology and healthcare and how to promote health using tech. And a lot of the things that they were talking about then are very much done everyday things now, you know, like the um, insulin monitors that are like glucose monitors that automatically upload to your phone like that in 2016, when I was working there, that was a new idea. And now it's like, oh, yeah, I have a freestyle Libre. It's just very much. um, It's it's amazing how quickly, how quickly the, um, the technology has really become Mm -hmm. part of the, like the market space. So now all that long story behind us, I'm now in medical school. And I went to medical school at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Did you want to know things about that? Did you have a question specifically yeah, about course, medical school? Yeah, of course, of course. Well, let's let's like us pause right there and let's like kind of go back a little bit with with your story, which I feel like you speak to a lot of like how 
a lot of um, people applying to medical school usually do have like nonlinear paths, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's that's actually more typical than those who they consider more traditional paths, mm -hmm. right? And so I really love the fact that you, you know, spoke about your uh, experience as a phlebotomist and um, also that that you were able to manage doing that while also taking your post back or yeah, right post back classes at night. Mm -hmm. And that's really tough. It's a really hard thing to manage both and uh, along with like your personal responsibilities and, you know, with any family and stuff. So I always really like to highlight that and and uh, want our listeners to know that that's perfectly okay to do things your own way in your own time. 100%. Um, Don't let any of these and, people rush you. There's absolutely no, no rush. Mm -mm, mm -mm. When you were saying that, kind of brought me a little bit to recently I was in my family medicine clinic um, and one of the MAs there, she was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm already 26 years old. Like I'm just kind of getting up there. I really want to do... Um, uh, my master's in nursing, but I don't even know if it's worth it. I'm like, you know what it is like, who's, who's rushing you? She's like, mm, I guess like my family and like friends and all that. I'm like, what does it matter? It's your life. <laughs> mm -hmm. You do what you need to do and you'll get mm -hmm. there. It doesn't, you can be 30 something and finishing your master's in nursing and you'll be better off that way. Cause it's something that you want to do. Um, so I always kind of like to point that out. Um, and then also shout out to the whole public health thing, because I also uh, do my bachelor's in public health. Yes. Uh, my husband is doing his doctorate in public health, which I feel like Ooh. it's so funny because he also said like, oh, it's so sexy right now mm. <laughs> because of the pandemic and so everything. Sexy. I'm like, what a time to graduate with your doctorate. <laughs> what a time. What a time. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about that process of applying to medical school. Mm -hmm. Did you have like any difficulties with that? Um, was there anybody there that was able to mentor you uh, in the application process? Because that alone is just so tricky to navigate. Absolutely. The University of Maryland Science in the Evening program actually did a very good job of mentoring us through the process. Like again, we don't get a bachelor's like, or not a bachelor's, but a baccalaureate certificate from it. But Mm -hmm. They had a pre-med, they had two pre-med advisors that kind of talked us through what classes we should take to prove, you know, points about, you know, whether or not you were going into PA school, vet school, med school. If you were trying to make up for past grades versus this was your first time taking them, they kind of suggested different things to take so that it proved a point. You know, in my case, I did badly in bio and I didn't, I had only done one bio course in college because I had an AP an IB, AP IB bio course that counted. So I only did bio once and that counted, but it would be nice to show them, oh no, look, she can do the biology. So they, they guided me in that regard. And then they also had opportunities for us to learn about personal statements, the types of things to include on your application in terms of um, activities and research opportunities and all of those kinds of things, um, mm -hmm. volunteer stuff. And they, they did a very thorough job of that and also gave us the opportunity to have mock interviews. So even though we didn't get like a, pro a certificate out of it, they were very, they did a very good job of um, supporting us through that process. And I also had some very supportive mentors. Um, my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Fadi Coleman, who is a, a microbiology uh, professor at BU. Um, I know her from my music days and in college. She's married to my gospel choir director from undergrad. And I happened to meet her and she was able to mentor me. So again, being non-traditional and majoring in the things that don't look obviously medical are not a bad thing. It's an opportunity mm -hmm. to meet new people and learn new things. And look at me, I have a whole, uh, you know, basic science mentor before I was in med school. No, it's true. It kind of gives new perspectives that you bring into medical school. Because I mean, really, it would be so boring if everyone just majored in science and had no other perspectives. <laughs> Bio major who did some uh, scribing in the ED somewhere and, you know, volunteers at a food bank. Like that's the picture of the mm -hmm. medical student application. And you don't have to do that. I mean, it's cool if you do that 100%. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with it. Yep. But you're allowed mm -hmm. to do other things. There are mm -hmm. other ways to get experience. There are other ways to learn about whether or not this is your passion. 
I agree with you. And, uh, and, you know, I thought that you were really insightful too with how you brought up, you know, you have being away from like the clinical space. Um, and then once you realized that you wanted to pursue medical school, you made that very smart decision to like get that clinical experience. And again, by getting that phlebotomy certificate, which mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, a lot, especially for a lot of students who take like gap years or come, you know, or students that come back to it after, you know, uh, maybe like a career change or something like that. Mm -hmm. It is very important to demonstrate that like clinical experience and that um, drive, right? Like why you want to go into medicine aside from like your other extracurriculars. So 100%. I thought that was a really nice point. Thank you. And I also want to acknowledge that that can be sometimes awkward because I know for me, somebody who had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, being back in community college to get the certificate was an experience because you know, you are with people who just graduated from high school and they're trying to get this so that they can have their first job ever. And again, you end up in a space with people from all different walks of life, people who are also changing careers um, because what they're doing isn't lucrative enough. It's not helping them pay the bills. And so they are here because they need a new job and you're here because you need clinical experience. It, you're going to be in different spaces with different people. And medicine is basically <laughs> the purest example of that. So don't be afraid to you know, think out of sight of the box when you're approaching this kind of um, return to the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great point. Um, and so with the application process, did that go smoothly for you? Like, yep, I, I applied once and I got in. I know that that is not many people's stories, but I was extremely deliberate about the way that I approached this. Kind of like I said, in 20, you know, in 2012, I was thinking about it. In 2014, I was sure. I spent two years just preparing. I scheduled the MCAT. And this is a big piece of advice to any pre-meds listening. And really, actually, anybody listening, when you schedule the exam, come hell or high water, unless something crazy happens, don't change your date. You will basically psych yourself out, constantly moving it a little bit, a little bit, a little mm -hmm, bit until mm -hmm. you push your future back like two years. If you need to, like I said, if there's something serious, absolutely push the date back. If you're just freaking yourself out and you're going to do the same this tonight or next week, just do the, just take the exam. And that was something I did. I scheduled my date <laughs> for the MCAT <laughs> and I worked towards that date and everything, all of my perspective was towards this one goal for that time. And I am blessed. I know I'm blessed and I know that I'm unique and that I had parents who were extremely supportive. I was living in my parents' basement, no door on the basement, just, <laughs> you know, just vibes. Um, and I'm lucky to have had that space. I'm lucky to have not been paying rent. I'm lucky that yeah, the U.S. government gave me loans that I could quietly put on defer. <laughs> um, and I was able to, you know, focus really completely on getting in. And I was very lucky because honestly, a good chunk of it is luck. I was lucky to get in. And again, for people listening, um, I, I bring up MD versus DO simply because I, I was applying at the year that they were doing the merger. So are you uh, familiar what, what with the MD? No, I was actually gonna... the, AC, the AOA and ACGME merger. So in 2020, AOA was the Association of Osteopathic, um, forgot what the A stands for, I'm so sorry, but the AOA <laughs> had its own uh -huh. residency programs and you had mm -hmm. to apply into a separate, like you weren't applying into the match, you were applying into a separate thing to get into AOA programs. Mm -hmm. ACGME mm -hmm. is linked to the NRM NRMP, which is the match. And so then mm -hmm. they in 2020 made the decision to link and the idea being that now we have made DO, traditionally DO spaces available to MD students too. However, mm -hmm. also hopefully making it easier for DO students to apply to places that are very traditionally very heavy, heavy um, DO spaces, or excuse me, MD spaces. Mm -hmm. I applied into DO programs um, knowing that this was going to be a funny year because we didn't know what this was going to look like. We didn't know if this meant that MD students were going to have a huge advantage because mm -hmm. now like MD is the most familiar to everyone. They're just going to get all the spots or if um, it was actually going to make things better for DOs because now more programs weren't requiring, uh, weren't requiring step. They were willing to take, of course, I can't think of the DO. Com Thank complex? you. Is that complex. It? Right. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly it. They were willing to take complex. More programs were willing to take complex. So it was an interesting time. It was a complicated time to be applying as a DO, but there's absolutely like DOs are 
medical doctors, just like mm-hmm. MDs, just like um, one of the MMBSs. Um, if you graduate from like a, a foreign medical school, like we're all mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the same page. We're all getting the same type of training. Um, there's absolutely no shame and you should not be worried about that. And I say that specifically for pre-meds because again, I went to the type of institution that didn't even bother mentioning the DO was an option. So yeah, just wanted to make sure y'all know. Actually, I love that you brought that up. Um, and you know why? We, we do get the same amount of training. I, I'm at an MD program, but we do not get that very cool like manipulation mm-hmm. that y'all do. And mm-hmm. Amazing, we don't get that training. honestly. You have like an asthmatic on the floor and they say, oh, hold on, I'll go do some chest physiotherapy real quick. And you're just over there like, oh, what? No, I want to see. <laughs> like, it's just... Uh, <laughs> A whole extra level of training. And I know that that can sometimes be stressful. God bless you, DO students. But it's also an additional tangible skill, which mm-hmm. if anybody younger than pre-med is thinking about this, I really encourage you to have a tangible skill too, which is kind of what the reason that I chose phlebotomy, because I literally learned how to do a skill. Now that I am an MD, the great majority of MDs are not regularly placing lines anymore. And I have that mm-hmm. skill. So any opportunity that you have to get a like a ta- like a real put your hands on it skill take it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, you know it's so funny that that uh, there are some patients that will, will rather have an MD or a DO do um, uh, the line or something. You're like oh, mm-hmm. you should really let the nurse do that or somebody. <laughs> I do this once every three months, my love. Please, yeah. please wait till the phlebotomist comes. It'll be okay. <laughs> Oh my gosh, so funny. Um, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to like DEO programs. I re- I applied to some too during my application process, but I really didn't know like what I was doing. I didn't shadow a DEO. I just kind of like for strategy purposes, just wanted to apply to as many places as possible. For sure. Um, but yeah, I wish I would have taken a little bit more time to really, you know, shadow a DEO physician and kind of learn more about what their medical education looks like um, and how it differs from MD. But either way, I know I, I know I wouldn't have gone wrong with either um, program. So 100 percent. Um, and so now you're in medical school. How was medical school for you? Medical school has its ups and downs, as we all know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I came into medical school in 2017 and I started off OK. I was surprisingly OK to begin with. Um, and I want to say, when did I fail my first exam? It was in that first semester. I failed an exam. And I remember when I came to the school and they were telling, somebody in passing was talking to someone near me and said, oh yeah, and if you fail an exam, they let you retake it. So you should really feel good about that. And I turned and I said, we fail? What? Huh? Because again, <laughs> wait, I was like, what do you mean? Does that really happen? And he was like, yes, I failed many exams. And I was like, what do you, what? Is that an option? I was shocked because again, <laughs> The way that I was looked at after failing organic chemistry was as if you worthless thing. How could you ever think of being pre-med? And here they're telling me in med school that I might just fail a whole exam and then simply have the opportunity to retake it. And I said, well, this is this is new. <laughs> so, OK, let's let's see how this goes after having lived this very type A, very high achieving life for so long. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, and I failed an exam in my first semester, and they put me in the remedial class, which was great because the teacher was incredible, Dr. Julie Carey at EVMS. Um, Really beautiful technique of like adult learning technique, as well as um, teaching how to answer questions for standardized testing. Because, you know, I can get on my little soapbox real quick. In the United States of America, some places are very focused. Some school systems are very focused on standardized test taking. And so Mm -hmm. it is a skill that people gain because they started taking standardized tests at the age of eight. Some people did Mm -hmm. not have that opportunity. And therefore, when they are thrown into this world at the SAT level, they don't do as well. And then people connect that to IQ, which is utter and complete blankety blank. Mm -hmm. But you know what I mean. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we get to the, you know, quaternary level of education, med school, and you're expected to to pick it up and be good at it suddenly. And it's not easy. It's very unnatural and you have to be taught how to do it. And so I was very grateful for those remedial courses because they taught us clearly how to do some of that. Oh my gosh, can I interrupt you there for one second? Like I, 
okay, this actually goes back to what we were t- you were talking about with the MCAT. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a thought that I wanted to say there. Like, so we I had talked to Dr. Franco too on the last episode mm-hmm. about, you know, prep courses and everything like that and having to find the right type of prep course for yeah. you, for your yeah. learning style. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, and that just kind of speaks to if you you need a prep course not because not so much because you need help with the content maybe maybe you might likely not likely not likely it is because you need to learn how to take these tests because it's all about recognizing how they're going to ask you the Mm -hmm. content that you know and it's a skill that I feel you don't really like kind of like even truly master until you're done with medical school after doing all those standardized exams right and so Mm. I just really it always boggled my mind how so much emphasis is placed on the MCAT when really you don't hone that skill fully until like the end of medical school Mm -hmm. you know or like I felt that at least that for myself personally and so when you're talking about your experience too I'm like same I felt literally the same way Are you at a medical school that does NBME exams? Yes. Okay. So, you know, listeners, just real quick, some medical schools write their own exams. So mm-hmm. when you were doing exams for subject by subject, it was basically whatever your teacher gave you asking you to, do you understand the content? Which is great in general, if we were just being asked to understand content, but we're also being asked to answer questions to this exam. So many medical schools have transitioned to doing um, NBM, old NBME exams, which is to say the National Board of Medical Examiners, old retired questions from past step exams. And that, again, is an opportunity to hone that skill. We didn't have that type of thing in undergrad. We didn't have that in any of our post-bac courses. This is something that we only, like you said, hone as a skill in medical school because medical schools have finally realized we literally have to teach towards this test. Because that's our licensing exams. Like <laughs> You better teach towards <laughs> you this test. Teach- Right. It's just because you're not that great at it in the beginning doesn't mean that you won't get better at it, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of like to kind of point that out because I feel like that's such a deterrent sometimes for pre-medical students where they might not have gotten a competitive score or maybe as high of a score as they wanted, right, to, mm-hmm. to compete with the other applicants. Mm-hmm. But I would say shoot your shot. If you have, uh, you know, a very competitive application, otherwise shoot your shot. I mean, exactly. I applied with a 499 and I'm always very transparent about that. And I yeah. got in my first try. Like, yeah. I have a dear, a dear friend who's also, who's in family medicine and he also 499 or 495, excuse me, and got in. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. you can do this. It's going to be fine. Um, I talk about balance, right? Just like you said, if otherwise you're competitive and what does that mean? So grades and score is only one part of the picture. That's academics, and we'll leave that in a corner somewhere for now. The rest of the conversation, (laughs) we're talking about your extracurricular activities. We're talking about your service. We're talking about your clinical experience. We're talking about your research experience. We're talking about who you are as a person. If all Mm -hmm. of the rest of that glows, like when I'm reading your application, if I want to meet you, I ain't worried about a four or anything. Like pass the test and come talk to me. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So be encouraged, folks who are listening, who are in the process. It's going to be very okay. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? Academics, you can get better at that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some certain aspects, you can get better with everything else extracurricular, but you can't really change the type of person you are. 100%. And it's Mm -hmm. funny, med schools are currently trying to teach compassion and you can see who it's working on because they already had it in their souls and who it's just an exercise and uh repeating some words out loud. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, just be who you are authentically. It will mm-hmm. show in your experiences. It will show in your yes, it will. essays and everything like that. Yeah. Yes, it will. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you where you were going with oh, that, no. but yes. Okay. So first, uh, first exam failed, re- did the remediation, which is awesome that your medical school offered that and totally supported you through, through that. Go mm-hmm. them. That's amazing. Continue on. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, got through first year, like, feeling a little bruised, but feeling pretty good about myself. I was able to go do some really incredible research in um, a village outside of Nairobi, Kenya. I was able to take a group of medical students to Ghana, which is where my family is from, and introduce them to a new medical system um, and start to create a relationship between my med school and uh, this hospital in Ghana, which was wonderful. And then, you know, came back for second year. Oh, second year. <laughs> oh, second year. Second year is a disaster for a couple of reasons. And really, by a couple, I mostly mean step one. 
one one big Mm -hmm. reason step one puts a certain kind of pressure on folks before you've even registered for it when Mm -hmm. we were over the summer while i was in kenya doing very cool things we started getting quiet little emails about have you considered starting to study for cardiology and i'm like uh study what (laughs) i haven't taken that before (laughs) are you going to send me like a workbook like in elementary school like what's the plan (laughs) and they they were like yeah 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 we'll just post a few ekg slides if nobody has explained an ekg to you before Reading about it online, if you are an interactive learner, will do nothing for you. And so that's how we started. And then they say, and by the way, this exam that, thank God, no longer is the be-all, end-all anymore. But at the Mm -hmm, time, mm -hmm. if you you mess this up, that's it for you. Nobody wants you. (laughs) Nobody's going to be your friend. You're never going to become an important type of doctor. You'll have to be a boring type of doctor, which, you know, pause and remind everybody that everyone has a a role to play. So don't let these people Mm -hmm. play you um, about what specialty you choose. But that Mm -hmm. really colored second year in a very unattractive way, in my opinion. It was made, it made it a very difficult year. People in my class got divorced. People broke up. Um, people dropped out. People, like, all kinds of things happened in second year because the stress levels were so high. And I'm so happy for all of you <laughs> that this is not going to be the same level of problem for you guys anymore. Everybody's relationships were falling apart because when you think that your whole life has to be studying, you stop focusing on the things that, you know, actually freaking matter. So second year was very... Mm-hmm very challenging. And on to cherry on top, I went to Eastern Virginia Medical School. And in 2019, the governor of Virginia had uh, a little scandal on the first day of Black History Month. It came out that he, when he was in medical school at Eastern Virginia Medical School, uh, posted in his yearbook a picture of him either in a KKK hood or in blackface. Oh, I think, I, yes, I remember this. <laughs> Yeah, that was my med school. And that was such a good time. Let me tell you, it's February 1st. Here we are doing our cool SNMA, it's Black History Month things. Suddenly, news like newspapers, reporters are descending, and we were like, what is going on? We turn on the news, we find out what's going on, we say, oh no. We realize that <laughs> any plans that we had for studying for the next few weeks are gone, because the Black students are going to have to respond <laughs> to, to what the institution needs to respond to, mm-hmm. and it was an extremely interesting few weeks on top of all of those other stresses that I was talking about. Um, And it made for once again, a very long, long second year. Yeah, that's not fair. I mean, having on top of all just like the regular stressors of second year and and the impending doom of step one coming around and Mm -hmm. you have to deal also with the scandal that's not even your scandal, but now you have to make sure. Not even my scandal. (laughs) Nothing to do with me. But now we can't study because there are reporters in the library. Like people are protesting the school now. There were, it was, it made everything very. (laughs) In the library, they were allowed on, on the campus? It's a public institution, so they're allowed on campus. And they came in and they wanted copies of the yearbook and interviewing students. And we were all got an email saying, you better say no comment. We said, ooh, okay. I get, um, (laughs) no comment. What what is your comment? (laughs) Yeah. You know, they came up with one eventually. But first thing we got was none of y'all talked to nobody. And so it was, once again, second year challenge. Most important thing you can do. And I've given this advice many times is to, you know, be kind to yourself. And especially for those of you now who no longer have to think about like your number, you just pass, fail. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Just do the very best that you can. Be kind to yourself when you're studying. Be kind to yourself during dedicated. Studying every day for four weeks is not good. Mm -mm. We are supposed to be training to be doctors. We know how important sleep is. You don't synthesize information. You don't remember information if you do not sleep on it. Mm -hmm. You have to sleep. You have to sleep enough. Do all of these things and do not deny yourself basic human necessities, period. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I th- I also just want to put a plug in there for, you know, doing the mental health work uh, activities that make you feel good, whether that's writing in a journal, talking to a therapist, mm-hmm. walking with your dog, talking mm-hmm. to your family, significant others. You have the time to take out of your day, your busy studying day, which I know feels like you don't have the time, but you definitely do. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to it is pay in dividends <laughs> for you taking the time it to do it. It should be. 
It should be part of your day. It Mm -hmm. should, it is just as important, probably if not more important than the studying, Mm -hmm. you schedule it in just like you would schedule another 60 questions. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's necessary. I agree. Thank you for plugging that in. And yeah, I'm glad that it's no longer, you know, the end all be all. You go into whichever specialty you want. Um, I just hope that they don't now use the step two as like the replacement for that, but we'll see how that goes. You know, (laughs) we're starting to hear rumbles that people need a number, like they need a number, they want to feel like they're being objective. And so uh, they are probably going to use step two for some of that, but at the very least, step two is a more practical exam. Mm-hmm. So be encouraged by that. Mm-hmm. Also be encouraged that some specialties are not like that. I agree. <laughs> you know, plug yeah. pediatrics real quick. Uh, <laughs> we They will take you. Uh, they just want to know if you love these kids, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so consider consider peds. Consider all the rest of us soft medicine folks. Procedural folks are probably a little bit meaner. Don't worry about them. That's not, <laughs> don't worry about them. Just come over here. Everything will be fine. Come over to Peds. The nicest people on Peds. Mm-hmm. Um, and family medicine. That's what I'm, I'm going into. And so. <laughs> exactly. Like I said, medicine people. Like anything that is a medical specialty as opposed to a procedural specialty. That's true. Mm-hmm. Of course we do stuff too. But if, if you're going to put them in two big old buckets, those are the two big old buckets. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So then from year two, hard year, and now into mm-hmm. the clinical years, how did those go for you? The third year was challenging, but it was challenging in a good way because you finally, after all of these years and all of these dreams of what am I going to be like as a doctor, you're walking into the room and introducing yourself as student doctor such and such. And it's absolutely abjectly terrifying, but you finally are starting to feel a little bit fulfilled. Science is not my thing, as demonstrated by my grades over the years. Being a provider is. So... Third year is the start of seeing who you're going to be as a provider. And that's really nice. It's stressful because everything is so subjective. You're trying to get these um, evaluations and people are grading you however. And you just kind of have to like let go and let God because people are going to come up with whatever number they come up with. And that's their problem, not yours. You just get your experience. Take the opportunity to learn as much as you can. Talk to every resident you meet because the bigger picture that you start to build of what life is really going to look like as a doctor, the better. Mm -hmm. Um, So third year was good. I mean, you know, I didn't faint during any surgical procedures, so we win. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and... I can't, I can't, I do have to mention that, of course, my third year was when COVID started and I was on internal medicine and I actually was kicked out of the hospital sooner than most med students were because I was about to start on my geriatrics rotation. And they said, oh Mm -hmm. no, nobody can go near old people right now. And so (laughs) from, from the beginning of March, 2020, I was out of class, like out of the clinical space. So I was in my house doing modules. And then about two weeks later, everybody else joined me. So that was... I remember that. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it was a time. And you would have been in um, the basic sciences at that I would have time. been in... Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I remember like my, my upper levels were like, what? <laughs> like, why are we still in clinical rotations right now? <laughs> I remember the month before when I like had it started to have like a premonition that something, it was coming. And I started seeing the masks disappearing. Patients were stealing masks out of rooms. Um And this is at the time that they were telling us masks aren't helpful, but patients were like, no, no, just in case. (laughs) So, I mean, it was amazing. Um, It was really amazing. And then one month later, bloop, (laughs) patients were right. (laughs) I guess we need to make some more masks. Um, So it made for a very different third year because I missed out doing a real family medicine rotation and I missed a real surgery rotation. Not sorry about that, but um, it would have, you know, been a good clinical experience to have as I made my decision about residency. But I'm I'm not sorry. (laughs) Well, you know, I think if if you were really serious about pursuing a surgical specialty, you would have made it happen. But uh... exactly, exactly. (laughs) And the way that my med school set things up, they usually gave you what you wanted to go into or what you thought you wanted to go into a little earlier in the year. So most people were Mm -hmm. okay. There was a one person mm-hmm. who decided at the last minute after loving OB that they wanted to do surgery and they were in a little bit of trouble, but my med school really um, supported them and made sure that they had like a out the gate fourth year rotation in surgery so that they could get some experience so that they could, you know, set themselves up well for application season. 
That's awesome. Yeah, the third year is just like it's it's a tricky piece on its own. Just it's such a huge learning curve that year, and um, on top of that, being the best that you can while you're learning because of these evaluations, but then also trying to manage your time when you get home to study for these NBMEs. It is a lot. It is a you know a, a different kind of monster, but it is fun. Um, I remember looking back on it at the end of my third year and I was like, wow, that was really rough, but I learned so much. It's really hard to believe. (laughs) And again, mine was such a different third year that then all of a sudden I had tons of time to study for NBMEs. We're just studying all day. And that made for a couple of very different (laughs) grades right at the end compared to earlier, which, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, med schools. Are you listening that some of us need more time? It's not that hard to give it to us. It really isn't. Like, can you just give us like a day? Just give a a few of us a couple, a little bit more time and don't treat it like we're, something's wrong with us because of it. Thanks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that. Um, And so, okay. So then we're done with the third year, going into our fabulous fourth year, um, getting getting ready to apply to PEDS. Did you know like early on that you wanted to apply to PEDS or how did that come about? It's continuing the pattern, right? Child development and community Mm -hmm. health, maternal and child health, worked in daycare, worked in just like in these spaces that I worked in. It was like, you are clearly moving in this direction. Are are we doing this? And they're like, yeah, we're doing this. So we applied into PEDS. Uh, There was a moment, not a very long moment that I thought about OB. And then we went into our first C-section and we mostly were focused on not fainting. So then we said, never mind. And I had always loved family medicine, you know, as a public health person, preventive medicine is like the crux of what I think we should all be doing. But PEDS mm-hmm. is in its its own way prevention because you're there from the beginning of life and you're there for the start. So I'm team prevention all day, all day. I hear that. I love that you made that point. Things that you are doing as a pre-med they definitely are going to be used when you are applying to residency. Mm -hmm. So all of those experiences, Mm -hmm. that personal statement that you're writing, Mm -hmm. keep that somewhere safe on a, you know, one of those clouds because you are going to use it for residency. And let me remind all of you to save, download and save your um, med school application because when you have to Mm -hmm. enter all of those activities again, it is nice that they are already Mm -hmm. written out somewhere. I absolutely used mine. Copied over experiences so that I didn't have to do that again. You've only done a few more in med school. You have all of, especially as a non-traditional, I had what, 11 years of stuff that I had to remember. Oh no, it was good to have it written down. Like she said, go ahead and save that Mm because you're going to need it. Mm -hmm. And another big piece of advice is to go ahead and promise yourself that March of your third year, get that personal statement started. It doesn't have to be done, but you start it March of your third year because it is so hard to write a personal statement when you're distracted. It is not an easy and natural thing to just, hello, here is me. I am so cool. I will tell you in a three paragraph essay how I am so cool and why you should want me for your residency program. So awkward. (laughs) It is so awkward. So if you start thinking about it earlier and you make it feel a little bit more natural over the months, like That is one, the way that you're going to have something, even if you're not done, something to give your letter writers who you want to have on board Mm -hmm. earlier, sooner than later. You're going to have something to look back at when it's August and you're like, oh, I have to have this done next month. It's much better than, you know, God bless my mentees. The couple of people who texted me at the beginning of September, like Ursula, help. And I said, oh man, (laughs) okay, (laughs) (laughs) let's, let's, let's have a chat. Uh, What are you good at? What do you want in life? Who are you? Why? <laughs> no, those are the questions, right? No, right, right. And that's really sound advice to just kind of get it started, mm-hmm. whether it's just like free writing everything yep. and then coming back to it later, yep. starting somewhere is going to help you so much because literally that like, uh, I guess that's kind of like the May until what, August, September, mm-hmm. you're just going to be so focused mm-hmm. on doing your sub eyes, yep. your aways, if you're doing yep. aways and getting your letters, right? And you want to give your letter writers at least, what, like two months, uh, mm-hmm. notice that with your personal statement in hand, yep. it could be a working personal statement, but at least something to give to something them. Something to so. give to them. Definitely. Highly recommend. Yes. Yes. And that's another thing that you should be using third year for is to make those connections and find out who has been paying attention to you and who will be able to speak about you in the way that you need them to for you to get into mm-hmm. residency. And I say it like that because some people will all like, oh yeah, I can write you a, you know, a letter of rec. And you're like, okay, 
eyes narrowed. Like, you just kind of throw it <laughs> as an aside, as opposed to somebody who's like, I absolutely loved working with you, and I would be very proud to write you a letter of recommendation. Now, that sounds good yes. to me. That sounds yes. great, because that enthusiasm is going to go into the, the letter, which then people reading applications who have read 500 letters today are basically at this point looking for buzzwords. And if it says, I highly recommend, this person was outstanding, you know, it's going to hit me in the face as opposed to so-and-so was lovely. I really enjoyed working with them. I really recommend them for your residency. It's great. They're very nice. It's just Mm -hmm. not going to hit me in the face and let me know that this person recommends you. So start looking for those Mm -hmm. people, start making those connections in third year, and then just like you're starting early on your uh, personal statement, you warn those people that you want a letter from them nice and early because there are other people who mm-hmm. also want letters from mm-hmm. them and everybody's going to get real mm-hmm. busy around August and you're going to be real stressed on September the 27th when there's just like crickets in the back. So, <laughs> Oh my God, Dr. Griffiths, Randolph, you have, you're just filling everything here. The, the sooner the All better, my love. good advice. Yes, no, it is very true. Um, and I don't know if you tell your mentees, mm. um, like, to put a packet together for your letter writers. Mm-hmm. So for me, that consisted of, like, your personal statement. Yep. Um, I think I also included my, like, uh, activities and everything in there. Uh, and I feel like I probably included, like, what was one of my meaningful experiences with them, just to kind of, mm-hmm. like, jog their memory. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, all of those things will just help them kind of give them material to talk you up. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a great opportunity to touch up your resume, which you may not have looked at in a couple of years. Uh, Touch it up and send it out along with that work in progress personal statement. And just like you said, something to jog their memory. Because again, just like they're going to have a bucket load of letters to write, they have worked with a bucket load of people. And while they may have had a wonderful experience with you, medicine is tiring. (laughs) Please just help them jog their memory. Mm-hmm. That's all really sound advice. And yeah, the sooner the better, uh, giving them that little warning. And you know, what what are, what are your thoughts about um, if you don't hear back from a letter writer, and it's getting like, dangerously close to like the deadline? How did you experience that? Or what advice do you give to your mentees about reaching out and kind of giving them a little friendly reminder? I was very deliberate, like I said, with my timing. So in March, I had started a personal statement and I'd made sure that I'd reached out to everybody that I wanted a a letter from at that point. I had an email, I had it in writing that they agreed (laughs) by March before I applied. (laughs) And so um, with that kind of as my base, I felt pretty good about, okay, at least I've warned people. And then in June, I sent a reminder email saying, hey, thanks again so much for your willingness to write me a letter of that. Very grateful. I will be back in touch in a little bit with my resume, my personal statement, and you know whatever else you need from me. Let me know what you would like me to provide you with. You know, also giving them the opportunity to ask questions. Some people like to like do a little mini interview to like, no, tell me a little bit more about yourself. And so give them that opportunity by sending out that email early. And then, you know, when you're ready, send out your materials. I did mine uh, two and a half months in advance because our due date was October 21st and I sent out everything to my letter writers on August 1st. Mm, okay. Then I started sending harassment emails on October 1st. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> always very polite and, you know, getting down to the people who hadn't heard back by the time that they wanted to. Oh, hello. Thank you again so much for your willingness to write me a letter of rec. I know that things have been quite busy in the middle of the panorama we're living through. Um, just reminding you that um, my due date is XYZABC. I very much appreciate your time. I recognize um, this is a sacrifice and I'm grateful for your help. Sincerely, me. Right? Yeah. Sent out that email on October 1st and I was very lucky that I had the phone number of the person so that a little bit closer to when it was getting a little even more down to the wire, I said, hey, it's me again. Um, and I sent that in a text <laughs> message because you get a little bit snappier response and that's not always going to be possible. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. Think about the other ways to reach out to somebody, like if they're not reaching out. You can either literally run up on them in their office, you know, as politely as possible during um, business hours and the rest. And you can also have your med school deans advocate for you, basically. Like, let your, like in our case, we had student affairs, and you could have told student affairs, like, hey, one of my letter writers hasn't been back in touch in a while. 
an email from you was going to get responded to faster than an email from me because you have a fancy title. Would you mind reaching out and reminding them about me? They were very good about helping with that. Depending on the relationship that you and your school have with your student affairs office, consider that as um, an option. That's really nice advice. I actually didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. But I also yeah. do love that you had the, the text message um, example in there because don't be afraid to do that. You might need mm-hmm. to. <laughs> This is our future we're talking exactly, about. Exactly, right, right. But obviously always in a polite manner and I mean always. Don't Business hours. At like nine o'clock at night. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't don't do that. Don't 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 do that. It basically is now that season for our current M threes to, exactly. to start to start thinking and planning. It is March. Get it together, all of you. I need mm-hmm. you all to start your personal statements in T minus five minutes. Come on now. <laughs> This is just a little friendly reminder that planning goes a long way. It will save you a lot of stress, long I promise way. you. It really will. Uh, okay. And so then uh, you apply to the residencies and yours were also virtual, correct? Yeah. I ha- had a virtual application season. Yeah. And my season was the first virtual ac- application season. So all of the rest of you are welcome for all of the tips and tricks that the class of 2021 was able to impart. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, I'm, I know you got that ring light, you know, mm-hmm. shine your face up a little bit, make sure that people can see you. Mm-hmm. But it was it was stressful because this was the first time I've been unemployed long enough that I'd been on enough job interviews that I'd done a couple virtual job interviews. But mm-hmm. the great majority of people um, at that time had not. And so again, my med school was very good. They had all these sessions. They were like, do not wear stripes because in computer cameras, it can sometimes make you look wavy and give people a headache. Um, be sure to, you know, have your shoulders and your face framed in the picture. Make sure that it's not too far away or too close because, you know, you don't want people like looking into your pores, but you also don't want people seeing like the whole of your room. Um, they gave us all of these pieces of advice. Um, they even showed us an example of like, you know, the gentleman had set up his office so that this side was like extremely cluttered. And then he said, but look at this side. And then like, <laughs> One painting in the back to show a little personality, a plain mm-hmm. white wall, you know, very simple so that you remain the focus and not what's going on in your background. We got a lot of very good advice. And then on top of that good advice, you know, you had to go find an influencer who was like, yes, go ahead and get the ring light. <laughs> and I, even if you're not going to spring for the ring light, highly recommend, you know, angle your desk lamp towards your face because we're staring at people for four hours, basically, and mm-hmm. everybody's face starts to blend. Um, it, you can't tell emotions as well on video cameras, so you have to be a little bit more obvious. I remember I ba- basically, during my mock interviews, practiced responding to things more ex- enthusiastically. Bigger head <laughs> nods. <laughs> <laughs> bigger laughs you know you're <laughs> muted so like they can't hear you you better <laughs> so that they can see you <laughs> or paying attention and care it was a very interesting time and uh yeah start practicing make sure that um you're on those lists at your med school for the mock interviews make sure that especially if you are a urm applicant get on the lm mm-hmm. like lmsa snma mm-hmm. Whoever is offering mock interviews, go get them. AAP, if you're interested in pediatrics, offers mock interviews, go get them. Any opportunity Mm -hmm. to practice, take it. I agree. I mean, I definitely took advantage of of the mock interviews that were offered by my school and it helped me so much. Um, I think even like just looking up some questions and like preparing what your answers would be, um, you know, in the privacy of your own home and recording yourself. Um, my school, I forgot what the platform was called, but they did offer something that like recorded you and it was like an AI like technology and it like analyzed your eye contact and your like your speech levels, the words that you would use, your gestures. It was really fancy. I really enjoy doing that. <laughs> that is so interesting. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Big piece of advice, y'all. Um, we're talking about the application season. We're talking about interviews. But one of the things that I think is truly the most important, kind of going back to my advice about what to do during third year, when I said to talk to every resident, talk to as many residents from programs you're interested in as possible. I made sure that I spoke to at least one resident from every program I applied to because 
Nobody is going to be able to give you the perspective like they are. The website is going to tell you, oh, yes, at this institution, we have XYZ and ABC, and everyone is so happy with that because that's their website and they want to look good. Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. to talk to people about what the -the on-the-ground experience is like, and you're not going to get Mm -hmm. that necessarily talking to faculty who are like, oh, yeah, things are great, and like their residents are in the back crying themselves to sleep every night. Um, (laughs) You have to talk to residents. You have to... Mm -hmm get to know people and people are generally very kind and very happy to talk about their experience because we all went through this we've all been through this and Mm -hmm. I encourage us all to not have short memories when it comes to this Mm -hmm. (sighs) and always give back absolutely I mean yeah I I totally agree with that I definitely took advantage of all of those like virtual residency dinners I you know took advantage of those got to see how the residents interacted with one another. And it's really interesting that even though it's virtual, you do pick up on a lot of like the body languages and how close they seem to be with each other. You pick it up. We're highly emotionally intelligent individuals. We sure are. No, Mm -hmm. you very much see those things. So go to those. But I'm also talking about um, pre-application season. So Mm -hmm. in like June, July, starting to when you're starting to come up with what your list is going to look like, starting to reach out to people so that you can narrow appropriately. I took a couple of schools off of my, um, or not schools, but programs off of my list based on conversations that I had with residents. I added places that I never thought I would be at based on conversations with residents. So it really will help you build up a list and figure out what you prioritize from the residency program. Because right now, as a fourth year, you're very good at med school, but you have really limited idea of what you want from a residency. Kind of in Mm -hmm. the same way that when you were an undergrad, you had gotten really good at being an undergrad student, but then you reach med school and now you have to figure out what it is you want. Do you want um, case-based learning? Do you want traditional learning? And you're not going to know that until you talk to med students and see how it's been going for them. So same thing goes for residency. Would you reach out like to the um, program coordinator and then it just connected you? I did a couple of different things. I Asked my school basically for all the old match lists back to 2012, which my school made available for us. I went on that list and I found institutions that I was thinking about applying to, somebody from my med school, an alum of my med school who had gone there. Um, And then I found them on Facebook or I found them via like our alumni connection. And I reached out to people that way. Um, Because again, that is somebody who has a built-in vague interest in you because you're an Mm -hmm. alum of their school and say, oh yes, wonderful, EVMS, go us, let's chat. And it also makes you a little bit less of a weirdo to like be in their inbox. But then yes, I also did reach out to program coordinators and program directors to say, hello, I'm interested in your school. Is there a resident who would be willing to talk to me? So take take a couple of angles. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Because that list can get pretty long and you don't want to be mm-hmm. applying to all of <laughs> all of those programs. I mean, maybe, mm-hmm. but ideally not. <laughs> ideally not. And of course, um, we were in the first virtual year, which was delayed because of COVID. And so few um, societies actually asked us to apply to fewer programs than we normally would. PEDS specifically was asking people with a step score over 230 not to apply to anything over 15 programs. Mm-hmm. Like historically, you apply to like 30 programs. It's very much what's done. And they were like, we're mm-hmm. begging you to apply to as few programs as possible. So I was trying to be very deliberate and very responsible about narrowing my choices Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's actually a good point because uh, I feel like a lot more people in this virtual cycles have usually applied to a lot more just because it gives them a lot more flexibility to apply to more programs but yeah I mean I I agree with you that sometimes more I think it will have like diminishing returns yes are you really going to take all of those interviews and um, you know, you can try, but you will be really tired. (laughs) Extremely. I hit interview eight and I was like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I do not care. I'm so tired. (laughs) Oh, it took like real energy to sit in front of the camera for four, like however many more interviews I did after that. I was so tired. Narrow as best that you can on the front end so that you don't have Mm -hmm. to do a bunch of narrowing and like wrangling with schedules and fighting with yourself about which programs interview should you go to at the end. And In addition to diminishing returns for yourself, also thinking about your fellow applicants. If you apply Mm -hmm. to 30 programs and you say, I'm going to interview at 30 programs, and then you get tired because this is exhausting, and then you have to like give back a whole bunch of interviews, you're asking the 10, the institution to the 10 institutions to now like scramble to find people to fill those spots. The 10 people who had to fill those spots maybe were like desperately waiting for interviews and until you were kind enough to relinquish them, um, were really sitting around wondering about 
if they're going to have to scramble or not. So consider what your chances are, who you are as an applicant and what you really want. Don't just take interviews for the sake of taking interviews. Right. I agree with you there. And so what made you decide ultimately to choose UCSF? Just like you said, by going to these virtual residency things, I went to a virtual open house not because I was at all interested in coming here. I'm very interested in um, caring for uh, Black families. And UCSF is in San Francisco, which of the urban centers in the United States has the lowest percent of Black people. So it's not no Black people, but it's lower than any other major city in the country. So mm-hmm. I said, that that's not the community I'm trying to serve. Why would I go to San Francisco? But I was interested in Children's Oakland. I was interested in Kaiser Oakland because that had a much more diverse sounding population. And so I said, oh yeah, well, you know, if I'm looking to the Bay Area, I suppose I should look at everything that's there. And I went to the session and I was blown away. And the whole rest of the application season, I compared every program to UCSF and nobody matched it. So this is where I ended up. Mm-hmm. I spoke to many residents, like several people picked up the phone to talk to me and they were all really lovely and speaking to all of them and hearing about the things that they value. So going back to my advice about reaching out to residents, you don't reach out just to ask about the program. You ask the people who they are, mm-hmm. right? Why I, I used to start all my conversations with, why did you go into peds? When I hear people like, oh, I just love kids. That's great. That's fine. But When I asked people like at UCSF, they were saying things that were closer to mine, like, oh, no, preventive care is like the most important thing that you can do, you know, uh, providing for public health is providing for community health to make sure that people have healthy and happy lives moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, that sounds like me. Tell me more. Tell me more. And what things do you value? What things are you allowed to do at your program? It's like, oh, there's a real focus on research and we love doing research here. Again, that's great. Not necessarily my thing. Um, UCSF, specifically the PLUS program or Pediatric Leaders Advancing Health Equity. Um, What do you guys value? What do you guys do? Oh, we do a lot of community service out outreach. We have all of these opportunities to engage with uh, community leaders. And do, I said, okay, okay, okay. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> and when you realize that you are matching somewhere or you know ranking somewhere that aligns with your values and is going to give you the type of things you think you value, because um, you don't, again, you don't really know until you're at a residency program what you value. A lot of folks think like, oh no, I want a ton of volume um, because you think volume means you're going to learn more, but then you forget to think about what type of learner are you? Mm-hmm. Are you the sort of person who learns from repetition? Or are you the sort of person who learns from like, seeing and then pausing and reflecting and then seeing again because that's not volume right and so as you talk to people you start to realize what that is going to look like for you Mm -hmm. so once again talk to people I spoke to oodles of people and they were all wonderful I agree with you so um, I know that we're cutting close to you know the (laughs) above the hour so I just want to be respectful of your time Um, maybe I want to end with maybe two more questions if we have time for it yeah my second to last question, I, I want to know really, how has intern year been for you? What has been something that surprised you during intern year? Um, it's been challenging. The same way that kind of third year hits you in the face as like, oh, now I'm in the clinic. Oh, now I have patients. Oh, I'm responsible. Um, intern year hits you like a ton of bricks because you literally put in the order. If something is wrong with that order, you have hurt the patient. If you have forgotten to put in an order, you are not taking care of your patient. Um, if you don't learn quickly enough how to manage your hospital system, you you deal with guilt, you deal with stress because you have to figure it out. It has been challenging. Um, in addition to that, you know, I moved across the country to come over here. I was in med school in Virginia. My family's from the D.C. area, and I'm in San Francisco, a part of the country I've never lived in before. That was a big change. And so I made the decision to come about a month before orientation to make sure that I got used to the area, um, which was good, and I'm happy I did that. I also am very lucky that I have some very close friends here so that I feel supported, even though my family's not here. But if I didn't have those friends, I'd be struggling a lot more than I am. Um, Residency. (laughs) All right. In the spirit of honesty, residency is a scam, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I highly recommend (laughs) that you read uh, Dr. Brian Carmody, who uh, is actually um, a professor at my med school, um, a pediatric nephrologist. He is the sheriff of sodium on the internet, and he writes a lot about medical education and the great 
USMLE scam. And a couple of weeks ago, he put out an article about how much residents are worth. You know, most of us are being paid between fifty and $70,000 a year for doing the same amount of work that advanced practice providers who are wonderful and talented are getting paid like three times that. And so it just, it's very demoralizing to be working seven days a week. Other folks only work three days a week and make three times as much as you do. Mm-hmm. It's just it's very, very, very difficult to kind of live like that, especially, you know, for someone like me, I'm 33 years old. Um, People that I grew up with, people that I went to college with are all off having babies. They're buying houses. I can't do that. (laughs) Me me and my salary cannot do that for you. And certainly not in the Bay Area, California. So it... What do they say? Uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. Like, try not to compare yourself. We're all on our own journeys and uh, we're all going to get there when we get there. But being in residency at like this time in your life is very challenging for all of those reasons. Mm-hmm. And you have so little time. I mean, I have time. Clearly, I was able to make time to pause and be on a podcast real quick. But <laughs> it's not the same type of time that people who can go to happy hour pretty much every night have. So yeah, it just makes for a very difficult um, three years. And my goodness, I'm so happy it's only three years. Yes. Again, procedural people, think about your lives. <laughs> think about what you want. Because <laughs> those residencies are four to seven years, okay? Mm-hmm. Come to Peds, come to Family Med, three and you're out, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. Just a reminder. And I think I just want to plug in, I think uh, there's a shortage of doctors and I think it's primarily in the primary care sector. Not necessarily. It sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying so, Sarah. <laughs> come on now. So come on over. The water's great over here. (laughs) It really is. Hopefully things will change. I think, uh, you know, I think I am hopeful when I hear about more people talking about how the medical education is. And I think the more we kind of start talking more openly about it and try to change those things from within, who knows, maybe years from now, residency won't be this way. And, you know, on that subject, a plug for any of you when you go to residency, consider which residency programs have unions because it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference being at a residency program with a union. The year before I got here, somebody wasn't allowed to take their full parental leave and the union kicked up a big old storm and sued the university. And now parental leave is extended and people are like getting their right to stay with their family during that really important time. If you did not have a union, you know, exhausted residents as you are, how are you going to be able to do that? Really seriously consider as you're making your rank order list and seriously consider as you're like even choosing what residencies to apply to, to look for places with unions. Oh, I wish I would have talked to you just before I submitted. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. That's actually good to know. I really didn't know about that we had unions. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes a real difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And so then my last question, I think we have so much great advice for our listeners, um, that we have said throughout the whole podcast, but I usually like to end it with the question of any last like parting words or final words of advice that you have for, you know, any of our listeners, whichever stage of the journey that they are in. I think it kind of the way that we started, I'll say it again, take your time. You are on no one's schedule, but your own, like, don't let anyone rush you into a decision. Don't let things taking longer than expected tear you down uh everything in its own time Mm -hmm. it's gonna be so okay no matter where you end up on this journey it's gonna be okay there will be another piece there will be another opportunity and you are brilliant for even thinking that this is something that you want to do you are amazing for even considering helping people in this way so be kind to yourself and take your time That's a really, really great piece of advice. Thank you so much. On that note, we'll go ahead and end this podcast episode here. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the I Look Like a Doctor podcast. If you would be so kind as to leave us a review on your listening platform, it would really help us to get the show out to more people. Thank you.